Hi, y'all, and welcome back to the podcast. So this is a little intro into today's episode, and I have tried to record this numerous times because I think I want to be able to explain the context of this conversation. So today I have my mom on the podcast, and we are getting to hear more of her her perspective of what this autism journey was like, what it was like having my brother diagnosed, what it was like going through intensive early intervention, what her emotions are like. And I think one of the reasons that I want to over explain this is because this is really vulnerable, y'all. It was hard for me to record my personal episode about my perspective on our family story, which was episode 16. Y'all might have even heard I cried in that episode. And, And there's a few tears in this one as well but I think it's that vulnerability and wanting to protect our relationship and I also know the importance of a story like this we get deep we get raw we get vulnerable we don't leave any stone unturned and I think I want to protect it and hold it in a bubble but I also know that this story is important for parents to hear and at times it may be difficult you might actually even experience me pushing my mom to experience and drop back into what those emotions are like this is vulnerable for me for my family I'm just so grateful that they're allowing me to use a public platform to be able to serve the families I'm working with and tell our family story and I don't know if the discomfort of fully exposing this story will ever disappear and I'm not gonna let fear be the reason that we don't have conversations like this so I hope you enjoy. If you find value out of this episode, the most special thing you can do is share it or send me a DM. Let me know what it was like for you. All right, that's all. Let's do this. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. I'm live from my living room. And if I'm being completely honest, we have tried to record this intro multiple times. And the reason it's been different than normal is I actually have a very special guest here today, which is my own mom. So just recording this from my living room and we're hanging out on the couch. We're just going to have a conversation about what it was like for me growing up, what it was like for my brother, what it was like for her, and also get some insight into what she thought about the episode that I basically told our family story. I think this is a unique episode in the fact this is very real. This is real life. It also feels a little weird to record our conversations. And I think one of the things is a lot of times when I have guests on the podcast, they're used to speaking in different 
domains or platforms, whether that's publicly or they're working with kids behind the scenes. We're just going to have a casual conversation, but I think this episode could be really insightful for you as a parent, especially when you're thinking not only about supporting your autistic child, but also supporting yourself supporting your partner, supporting your other children who are not autistic. So curious mom, we'll start off for you. What was it like listening to the episode and having me share our family story? It was truly very touching and you forget a lot when you're in the moment, it brought back memories, but you know what I can't believe is we're through it all. In case you didn't listen to it, it's episode 16 called ICU, and it's all about my personal story. So my brother and I are 10 years apart. He was diagnosed when he was 23 months of age, and he's 23 now. So in many ways, we're through the journey. And I'd also say in some ways too, the autism journey never ends. I shared this on the previous episode, given the way that his treatment went, he doesn't really identify as autistic currently, and not because he's in denial, but he didn't grow up identifying in that way. I think some of it was culturally, that wasn't as much of a thing back then. But also from two to four, he went through intensive therapy. And by the time he entered the school system, he no longer had that diagnosis. And I shared this on the previous episode. As a provider, I would not remove a diagnosis. The way that our diagnostic criteria is, it's just very different now than it was. So it's made a unique experience for our family. What would you say for you personally were some of the hardest things about going through intensive ABA therapy? Well, I was an older mother when we had him. And I thought, how come I can't do this? Why do I have to have all this help? It definitely takes a village. We had seven different people coming in our house 40 hours a week. So what were all of those? There was a behavior therapist. So the BCBA. Speech therapist. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hop around. An OT. Okay. And then we had three. Uh, Behavior techs. Yes. And then was what's it, the big guy? That's not the BCBA. Yes. The one, the, the one that like coordinated ABA therapy. I guess you'd have a service coordinator. We lived in Erie, Pennsylvania and ABA therapy when my brother went through it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, was completely new. You guys were one of the first families. Yes. We even built a therapy room downstairs in our basement and had a two-way window. So families could come watch us just because I wanted to pay it forward. And I hope you don't mind me chiming in, but I used to say to him, and it's not that we hit it. I would say to him, you've got to find your place in the world. We can't make this an excuse. And I also wanted early intervention before he entered school because I wanted to be the coordinator of everything. And I think you had heard some horror stories about what working with the school system can be like. And some families have amazing experiences and others have a really rough time. And so wasn't that part of the driving factor? Yes, but also too. Now, our pediatrician at the time was very good. She'd say, you're the mother. But a lot of people would be like, no, I don't think so. Without even really knowing much. And honestly, even a couple of our Family members, therapists and family members got it. They were like, yeah, I consider back then 
when they gave the diagnosis, they wanted to apologize for the terms, but back then it was 2001, a little bit different, but they wanted to automatically tack on an MR diagnosis. Which for those listening is mental retardation. So this was under just real quick and then I'll let her finish. But for people that aren't aware of this, MR was the term we now use for intellectual disability. And it also was different diagnostic criteria as well for autism. So he literally was diagnosed with PDD, NOS, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And they wanted to give an MR diagnosis simultaneously, but you tell them. Well, that was going to two different places also to try to get the diagnosis. It was very hard to get the diagnosis. And I had done my research and at the time, again, we're speaking at the time, the MR diagnosis could not be taken away when they entered school. But if you got an autism diagnosis, it could be taken away by the time he entered school. So I really didn't want to label him till I really knew what, and I definitely didn't think it was MR, especially when we first started some of our trials. But basically they were having him match cards, right? Match cards. And I remember the very first time they wanted to put out four cards and they'd say, put with same. And I'm like, no, do the whole deck. Just do the whole deck. It was colors. I said, just do the whole deck and have a match. And that's how we really knew there wasn't any intellectual disability. Yeah. We were just talking about a different way he needed to learn. Now, mind you, he knew his ABCs and I knew he knew it like his colors. He just wasn't talking much. Wouldn't engage. At one years old, we had an Elmo birthday party and Elmo even came. And he looked right through Elmo and he loved Elmo as far as on TV. So you could tell even at one, just his, basically his social engagement. Before we go deeper, I have a serious, but also facetious question. How did you do research back then? Because Google didn't exist. No, I don't know. Did you go to the library? Yeah, I think we might have. But (laughs) back then you literally, that's what you did. You took your kids to the library. I mean, things were different. (laughs) I know. It's just so funny because nowadays we have the internet at our fingertips. And I know I talk with parents constantly and they're like, I've done all my research and I know what that looks like. It's going on Google. But also, can you imagine parents all the time? They're like, yeah, I'm watching videos on TikTok and Instagram. That is how they're learning. We had to do reading material. Even I was definitely reading materials back then. I didn't even think of that. So there was a lot of homework even before you entered into it. So Even therapists were questioning after he was diagnosed or before he was diagnosed? Oh, even after, because at the time they would call it more like high functioning. I'm not sure right now. We wouldn't use that lingo now, but that was a really common term. And we just don't use that now. You'll find this interesting because of what you were just describing is because it's not one blanket functioning level. If you think about it, you were describing he knew his ABCs and his colors, but he wasn't speaking. So there were a lot of scattered skills. Yeah. He needed no physical therapy where a lot of times children on the spectrum do need some physical therapy. Didn't need any, we had a balance beam down in this therapy room and he could just do that. He was very physical, which back then they would say to them, well, he doesn't really meet the criteria because he's very physical. And that was just what he probably was good at. I also think it's important to keep in mind. I think back to that criteria and 
I'm not sure where they got it, but also Erie is, what would you say? A hundred thousand people live there. I don't know. I know. I don't either. I think it's something like that. We definitely were not in a big city with lots of access to resources. You guys did drive him to Cleveland for testing. Cleveland and even here to Pittsburgh. We had the National Barber Institute. They actually went national during all this time. There was just a lot of changes back then in 2001. We would go to a support group for us mothers. And at the time, there'd be two sets of different parents, one parent whose children never got to do this ABA or this therapy. And then us that were very lucky that it was offered. It was very new. Yeah. It was this new wave. And understandably, I think there was some resentment, some feelings of why didn't my child receive this? Sure. We wanted to try anything we could. And mind you, the therapy was literally 40 hours a week. Now I know that doesn't sound like much. I think for everyone that sounds like a lot. It is people coming in. I did make sure we took Sundays off. Although I will add, they would have gone to even church with us. They would do everything. They let us do our normal lifestyle. We just had a TSS everywhere we went. Well, did they initially though, or was that more you advocating? Probably that's true. I even had one back then rollerblading was really in the three wheel strollers, believe it or not, had just come out. So I had one of the therapists that was very physical. She would rollerblade. We'd rollerblade 12 miles a day just because that was what he liked and he enjoyed it. And you almost did anything you could not to have him tantrum. However, if he did tantrum, you had to let him go into a full blown tantrum and they could last for an hour at least hour I remember, and a half. Yeah. Two it hours. got nerve wracking, which is interesting. Cause that's a very different approach than now. We would not let a kid tantrum for two hours really? you, because some of it is, I always say this idea that emotions and intense emotions and crying and screaming, those are forms of communication and more likely than not, we miss the earlier bids of communication. And so some of it is actually this probably did happen, but in a different regard is you having big emotions and having to push them down and learn how to push them down or not feeling like someone is attending to them. But of course you guys were doing what they thought was best back then and what professionals recommended. But what was that like, I guess, to be ignoring him for an hour plus? Oh, it was awful. Sometimes they'd have me leave the room, but okay. I'll give you an example. Taylor was in sixth grade when we started this therapy and I'd be like, I'm going to go up to the corner and meet her at the bus stop. And they'd be like, sometimes I couldn't because if he was in a tantrum, nobody could leave the room because you didn't want to reinforce what they thought at the time you'd be reinforcing the tantrum. So there'd be times that she'd come in the house all by herself and she knew we'd be in the therapy room and she couldn't really come down and And I'd go up and meet her whenever we could. But do you remember the time you said to me, I've lost my mother. I just want my mother back. No. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for context, I was also an only child for 10 years. Yeah. And so I think when my brother was born, it really shifted the dynamic. And I mean, I desperately wanted a sibling and loved him. And there was no way to predict how our world would get flipped upside down. And at the time... I believe us mothers, I was an older mother. I was 40. We had to do amnio for- Genetic um, testing. Yes, for, what was it back then? 
you it were, wasn't autism. It was for uh, down, okay. like down syndrome, yeah, any yes, that's right. genetic abnormality. Right. But the thing is, and I tell, I even told my doctor, I said, no, I don't want to do an amnio. I'll deal with whatever I have to. I want, I'll take them anywhere I'm supposed to get them because we called them our back order. We wanted two children. And uh, the doctor said to me, no, you want to get your services in line. And I'm like, oh, that's true. Because they were more worried about Down syndrome. Not even thinking in a million years that autism. I mean, we still don't know. It's not like there's a test now for pregnancy or even at birth to have an understanding of all of this. I will say he did have a difficult birth. So maybe that had a lot to attribute to it. And that's what we'd say. Even the first doctor we went to wasn't quite sure. He said, but I could offer you some therapy. I said, well, let's try it. He he definitely was a blue baby, had to be revived. The cord was wrapped around twice, very tight, came out with no oxygen. They had to do the whole blue light. The whole thing when he entered the world was dramatic, probably from the get-go. The start. I feel like I asked this, but diving deeper, what would you say were some of the difficult things of going through all of this and having to navigate? And what do you feel like you as a parent, it put the most burden on you? I don't want to use the word failure, but I felt inadequate. So let me even skip back to Taylor. Taylor was a very, very high functioning child. I can't explain it. I had to read books about her. I was strong-willed for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then to think I had to read books the other way. And that's really all you had were books and references. And I did a lot with the diet because they thought it was the diet. They never really presented for him to be on any meds because again, he was high functioning. And I probably would have, if I would have gotten to that point and seen it, but we could see that the therapy applied the diet. I took him off, honestly, all dairy. And back then it was called potato milk when you would go to the support group for the mothers, they'd offer you different things. We had different people come in and speak. People saying we can offer you a cure. But anyway, it was called Vance's Foods and they offered us potato milk. We could buy it. And I remember thinking, okay, a lot of times they thought it was what your children were allergic to. And when you're allergic to something, you crave it. So he used to crave milk. He'd go through gallons. Oh my gosh. I remember that. Yes. So we had him food tested and he had an allergy to dairy. So that's where I think a lot of the behavior issues came in and why he wouldn't like focus. It was like this fog. So we got him off dairy onto this potato milk. And honestly, he probably drank it till he was nine or 10 years old. And if you would have told me I was going to still keep him on that at nine or 10 years old, I'd be like, he loved it. You're crazy. Yeah. The fog lifted once we could get him past the allergies. And I heard other parents talk about, oh, my daughter was allergic to peas, but she loved peas. But as soon as we took the peas out, we just thought it was diet, which I think it's a contributing factor. I think back then though, it was very much presented as this cure-all, which things, everything was presented as this cure-all. Autism was something you wanted to get rid of. The goal was to get the diagnosis removed. And it's just a different mindset now. And it's interesting hearing you say high functioning. And even if we use those words, I don't know if if, as a clinician now looking back would call him high functioning though. That's what's really, really, no, because he needed a a lot of support. I mean, he would 
literally open and close doors oh. for hours on end when you could not engage oh, him. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And he'd have horrible tantrums. So if, if I wanted to go, say I had to run some errands, go to the grocery store or whatever, how I would reward him, I'd be like, we'll go somewhere and we'll look at all the vacuum cleaners. And everybody bought him vacuum cleaners. You would not believe the different toy vacuum cleaners back then. They were cool. I wish we had them. But anyway, like a mini Hoover, little mini canisters. I mean, there are definitely ways he was impaired for sure. And life catered around him. He'd do the whole line, everything up. And you couldn't take it out of the line. Because he'd have a meltdown for two hours. And of course, you'd want to avoid that. And when I really noticed was going into the mall, taking him into the mall, let's say, and it wouldn't even be busy. And he would just start thrashing his head. Well, it was the lights. It was hearing all the different echoing. Maybe it was even the smells, but I'm like, okay, this is not normal. I mean, he'd thrash his head and so we'd have to leave the mall. And I guess the hardest thing to try to answer your question would be trying to adapt what I was used to doing around this two-year-old. You literally changed your life over a two-year-old. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I feel like could resonate with so many parents right now, this idea too, of feeling inadequate, feeling like you're failing your child. And the family. I had a 12-year-old. But it's interesting too, because I recently was doing a therapy session with a family and was sharing that a lot of times it's very different with a neurodivergent child and it's being able to shift and navigate and it's just a different style, but it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. But I think that can be a hard shift and also a lot of self-blame comes in. And doing things that you weren't used to doing. I'd already raised a child. I knew what I was doing. What do you mean? And we would sit behind, we would sit. So mind you, these 40 hours a week, don't think it was always up and doing whatever. We had a small little, I think back then, little tykes table. And we'd all sit at this table with them and we would reward him with Doritos. So you would ignore the bad behaviors and reward the good behavior. So literally little pieces, you know, Doritos. What's really interesting is I don't know if you actually know this. This is a lot of what the autistic community has a worry about with ABA is this idea of reward and punishment, withdrawing attention, also using food rewards. In some ways it's been said to be like dog training. And the reality is behavioral principles are similar, but also constantly just feeding your kid Doritos to get them to do what you want. It's an interesting thought. And I will say it worked for him. And what was hard is staying in that structure, getting everybody on board to almost use the same words, the same language. There was a lot I couldn't do because you wanted to stay in a structure. It's like raising any child. You'd have your boundaries and no, I, I couldn't go shopping. Do you think that was self-imposed or more pressure from the therapist? Well, that's a very good point. I think what they taught us was if you want this to work, you all have to be on board and you have to stay consistent. I, I felt good at the end of the two years or two and a half or whatever it quite ended up being knowing we had done it while you're going through it, it's like, gosh, if I could just go to the mall sometime and 
try on dresses. And it was a beanie craze back when she was growing up. And we'd think nothing of going picking up and gallivanting around. Well, you didn't do any more gallivanting around. Right. I, I think it's interesting. Of course, you're willing to make that sacrifice and see the value and the benefit and the progress. And I think at least what I remember, it was overly rigid. It was all or nothing. You have to be consistent, which meant you did this every single day. And there was no room for variability. There was no room to feel like you could take a day off. Did you experience that? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Exactly. Like you just did not take a day off. Even on Sundays, things might've been a little bit more relaxed. Back in the day, I like Dale Earnhardt, the racer. So I would be watching the race, not even realizing that here's this three-year-old. Now we're into a year into therapy and Sundays ended up just being more calmer because every Sunday, do you remember how much paper he would take and he would make the track that the race car drivers were racing at that no, day? No, I don't. And it would be- I mean, I do now that you say that, but, but I forgot. He would make it to a T every single Sunday. And I had a paper everywhere. And of course, I'm like, this is such a waste of paper. But so Sundays were more like he could do his thing, I guess you could say. So I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast. My brother from 12 to 19, right? 18. My brother actually raced cars. So what became this interest that evolved during the slow times, which I think is an important lesson for parents to hear that. Learning doesn't mean, at least this is my clinical and professional opinion, is learning doesn't mean that you have to always be on, you have to always be teaching, you have to be doing something. Look at these slow Sundays where our family's watching NASCAR and my brother was absorbing it all. And literally it became a passion for him. I actually used to say a lot, I don't know if you remember this, before I ever got in the field. I think it was before I got in the field or maybe early on in my training and career, I used to say like his restricted interest became his passion and became really adaptive in that way where he poured everything into it and pouring everything into it was important to be good. So here we are. He went to a private kindergarten after we did therapy. We thought, all right, let's not enter him right away into public school. So nine little kindergartners and they're going around, they're getting ready to graduate and they asked them what they want to be. And we had never heard this. He stands up and says, I'm going to be a race car driver. We were literally like, where did that come from? We had never heard about it. So I'm literally going to the other parents. No, he's not. No, no, no. What? No. But as life went on, we learned that he had such a deep interest in it that maybe this is the way that we could get him to, let's say, blossom. But I used to say to him, don't think you're just going to get in a car and just ride around a track. I mean, he would go and do the most 
public appearances. Oh yeah, he would. We took this passion of his, and almost in some ways that became the therapy. This goes so in line with neurodiversity too, of like using what he's interested in. And he'd have to interact with people at these public appearances. He'd sign autographs. He would be interviewed on TV or give speeches in the winner's circle because he he won quite a lot to the point it started in Erie, Pennsylvania, but then they ended up traveling all across the country. He went to Atlanta, Charlotte, Las Vegas, all the way up through his senior year. And then I think it was a lot, a lot of traveling. It was a lot. And he had to get all A's. I remember being on a plane once and he took his, he had his little helmet and he's probably about 15 or 16. And we had a team in Las Vegas and we'd go back and forth to Las Vegas. And someone said to him, well, don't you miss school when you do this? And he said, yes, but I have to get good grades and sat down. So then again, maybe I was apologizing more or less. I said to the parent, I bribe him however it is to get the good grades. He can't do this unless he gets the good grades. And I remember the parent saying to me, do what you have to do. But he worked hard. He really did. Do you remember? I made him do every single sport. I said to him, no, we can't race. Well, she was against racing. She literally told him he was born into the wrong family. We had had no racing experience. And actually his first race was a mess. It was. So, but we won't go into that. Here's what he said to me. He kept asking me every year and I'm like, sorry, no, I'd say the same thing. Finally goes, are you ever going to let me race? And the way he said it, it just... Oh my God, look what this kid has been through from the day he was born. And I said, yes, yes, I think I'm going to. And he said, when? And I said, 12, I just picked a number. His 12th birthday, he came to me and he said, he didn't give me a choice. He said, when are you going to buy my race car? Now, back then it was a little bandolero. They start out in these little cars. Yeah. And I didn't know what a bandolero is. We started taking him to the races to watch. Oh, I don't remember that. So it's so interesting as a clinician, I will say just taking a step back, he was very direct. When are you buying my car? And it's funny, I used to tell that story. But I it almost you could look at him and be like, isn't that spoiled the way he said it, but he's a very direct person. He says what he means. He's very literal in his language. And we know that's part of the autism presentation. There definitely were times he was very scheduled and routinized and he could be rigid with things. And in some ways that was hard. In other ways, it really paid off well. When you look at how he was with racing in particular, I think it really did serve him. So he tried all the different sports. Oh yeah. He didn't enjoy them. Didn't really like, I don't want to use the word he didn't fit in, but he didn't He didn't, maybe he didn't want to fit in. It just wasn't his thing. Yeah. His heart wasn't there. So let's shift gears here a little bit. And I'm curious, when you listen to the podcast, you told me a story about actually when I was in high school and driving me around. Do you remember this and how he couldn't be in the car? Yes, because they made me keep a daily activity diary, basically. And they went and reviewed it and they're like, all he's in a car driving the sister around, but she was very active. That's when we had to really get like an eighth person basically to help us. They'd either drive you, we would take turns, but that goes back to, we'd have to stay home and do, I don't 
want to say therapy, but it was. Oh, it was therapy <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And I think the thing that you told me that resonated is she literally said she didn't feel like she had a choice in being able to say no. And I think that's hard. Parents often feel with their child's providers being able to advocate and you feel like you need to put your child's therapy at the center. And while it is important, at the same point, we had this conversation about driving your kid around, especially in high school. I think it was late middle school, early high school is a lot of the times when you bond with kids at that age. And I didn't want to deny you any activities. You right. should have your life. But you had this. I'm going to be honest. I think in some ways, how do I say this? I, I think there's a little bit right now of like, well, it was fine, but it, it was freaking hard. Oh, yeah. It was. You still made a way. And I think parents do this all the time. They make a way for their kids needs to be met, but one need that as a parent, and this is probably hard to hear that no one can replace you is that personal quality time. And even the comment going back earlier of, I vaguely remember it, but of saying, well, I just want my mom back. I think the thing is that people don't talk a lot about is the amount of sacrifice that comes in that when you have an autistic child and literally I can truly, truly say from the bottom of my heart, there's not resentment or jealousy of my brother. I know that this was what was needed, but what it points to is all the missing gaps and the missing links that need to be part of autism care. And something else that I remember because I was sitting in my parking garage talking to her about the episode, she lives in North Carolina and something else that you said is no one really asked me if I was ever okay. Yeah, no, no. So how did you cope? Well, there was a lot of probably guilt, a lot of guilt for sure. A lot of sacrifices. I don't think I was in control of our life then at all. In many ways. Yeah, you weren't. And if you feel comfortable and if not, let this out. You did say like you ended up suffering postpartum depression and anxiety too. Probably more about after the fact when I was about 45. I guess maybe not postpartum at that point, but it's a traumatic experience you went through. I think knowing what I know now, I could be wrong, but you held your shit together. You held it all together while you had to. Sure. And then once things slowed down, sure. it really hit you. And what happened, it unfolded in layers because- he was a NICU baby. They track you. Then from there, they'd come to the house and make sure I was nursing him right. Then there's different things looking back that he just wouldn't eat right. But anyway, three months, they'd check him. Six months, they'd check him. He was constantly being tracked, being a NICU baby. Then he would be behind and, oh, you need speech. So it unraveled like layers of an onion. So we had speech. But I remember great speech therapist. And I'd use names because I still remember to this day, but I don't know if I should. But I remember dreading Mondays because not because of her, but because of how he'd go into whenever we would try to get him to do speech. He'd go into these full-blown tantrums. And I remember one day she was probably just as frustrated. You can say her name. What was her name? Brenda. Brenda and I were talking. We were sitting on the floor and we were both very frustrated. And I'm sure she dreaded coming to the house on Mondays just as much. And Probably I'm, not, honestly. And then finally, we were involved. But I said to her, I go, Brenda, I go, do you, th I had been reading. I said, do you think 
he could be autistic, I think is what we called it then. And she goes, I'm glad you said that. She was almost like relieved that I finally had brought it up because it was very frustrating doing that therapy. So from there, we just, I got a diagnosis, I guess, very fortunate the way it unraveled. Yeah. Would I have permission to reflect something I just noticed through that? I asked you a question about you and then you went back, you defaulted and you do this all the time. And parents, I think, do this all the time, but you defaulted then talking about his needs and what he needed. Well, I remember saying to you one time, and it might've been when you said I've lost my mother. And I said, if we invest the time now, our life will be normal later. And that's all I could think about it. If we take care of this now and we hit it head on, then we'll have some normalcy later. But is that true? Looking back. I think we were lucky. Yes, he progressed. There's no question about it. But there was still a lot of really hard shit after he was four. Yeah. He ended up being, I don't think I talked about this on the original episode or four or five. He ended up being diagnosed with OCD and went through treatment for that as well. You're right. That kept unraveling. We'd have to see different therapists for different things as he got older. I don't know if it ever fully got normal. And I think there's always this level of worry too, but still like go back to, I want to go back to, I know it's hard to talk about, but on the other side, I think this is the thing. And I think this is probably what showed up. And this is you as a parent too. I know a lot now about how you parent, even not being a parent myself, it's all about your kids, but like whatever you can, you do, but also that had to have been so hard and so lonely. I don't know. Cause I look back lonely, probably yes. But when you're in it, no, because you're very busy, but I feel like I always put even you first. That's just what I would do. I could see where I think we've talked before about 80 to 85% of the marriages usually didn't survive this. Yeah. So if anything probably got neglected, it would probably be, I mean, everything's fine. I don't mean it like that, but probably the father, the dad. I don't remember us having too many date nights. I think we would try once a month and got to the point where Taylor could babysit. I don't ever remember being resentful or how come I can't go do what they're doing? I don't know. But also going through depression and having everything and being really anxious and putting your feelings to the side, then it comes crashing down. There's nothing fun about that. No, but, but also I didn't really understand why I was feeling this way. I think it's almost like when you avoid an accident, your knees shake after it. That's a good analogy. So it was kind of like that. Once it was, you know, even first grade, we still had some issues, second grade. So I can't ever say there was ever a, oh, we did it. Yeah. What do you think it would have been like if someone was showing up for you and supporting you the way that Matthews was getting supported? I think that would have been wonderful. And I remember trying to make sure I went and got even my nails done, but people would make you even feel guilty about feeling that. Not my therapist, but maybe mothers that were mothers of your friends, they couldn't quite understand 
if I'm taking two hours and I'm literally blocking this out and this is what I'm doing, could you take Taylor such and such? And they'd find out, oh, you were at the nail studio. I had to drive her because you were at the nail studio. Balance was very hard. Balance was very hard to find even my time. That's pretty surreal to think about that you're finally carving some time out for yourself. And then there's judgment that comes. You guys were 10 years apart. So that's a decade apart. I'm sure a lot of parents wondered why I wasn't always involved when you were growing up and her activities. I would travel a lot. That was harder. When I was in high school and college, I was on the rowing team. And in college, I was on a D1 team. So we were traveling across the country. And even at that point, I would have been 14 through 22 at that age. So he would have been four through 12. And we never went places as a family. Like, let's go watch Taylor's dance recital. Somebody would have to stay home. Of course, I was going to be the one that went to the dance recital, but even church where you'd see the whole family come in and I'll be able to sit down. It's never none of that. Yeah. I just wonder, some of me wonders why some of it was hurt. It's structure. No no support. It was so new that even grandpa and grandma and both grandmas and grandpas, they would try to be involved, but they didn't fully understand them. And it's just such a generational thing. So I have a question regarding me and knowing that a large part I'm going to therapy now is like to provide some healing for what this was like as a kid. What is that like for you? Knowing that I'm going to therapy and working through a Truly, lot of this. I have guilt, a lot of guilt. Probably, and I probably had guilt then. And I, I definitely had guilt as you were growing up. What did you feel guilty for? Not always being where I should be, where I wanted to be. And even now I feel bad that you have to, I'm going to be emotional. That you have to. Have to what? That you have to, I don't know if I want to use the word relive it, but that it affected your life. Yeah. Too. I mean, it did. And I think that's the thing with siblings is we don't often talk about this. At least that's what I find a lot. And we got to sacrifice now for the long-term progress. And yes, it was worth it. No question about that. But then the other side of it is honestly, it was always part of our life. And I think, so I think the more it can, and this is no wrong on you as a parent, you didn't know. And I truly believe you weren't supported the way you needed to be supported. I don't think they probably just didn't know how they didn't know how. And Matt, my stepdad as well. I don't think he got any support in this either. And so I think that then makes it hard then to support your kids. Because it was so new. Everybody thought you have to put basically all your eggs in this one basket for the child. And I think maybe that is one of the takeaways of this episode as we start to wrap up is this idea of it doesn't have to be all or nothing and that it's important to consider all these other factors in it. And I think a family thing. And I think the more conversations you can have about it, the more you're real about it and like, listen, yeah, This is hard. You as a parent don't always have to be the one to fix the situation and feel like that there's going to be some solution. It is hard, right? It's hard for you. It's hard for the entire family. And also at the same time is as a family, the sacrifice is worth it. Supporting your kid 
you wouldn't even think twice about it, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I think looking back, yeah, we didn't really travel and I didn't travel. We didn't have a pet. I could not add another thing to our plate. Well, we did have a pet. We got one later when you were 16. You asked me for many years. No, no, a dog, a dog we got. But we, she would, she'd tell me no on a dog and I had every other pet in They'd go down to get a salamander and came home with a cockatiel. Yeah, which is a bird. <laughs> and the really ironic, actually, that was be all of the pets now that I think about it were before Matthews was born. And except the cockatiel, we still had but the really ironic thing. My brother ended up being pretty allergic to birds and had asthma attacks all the time because of this bird I got. <laughs> but it, I couldn't let her have a dog. Oh my gosh, the poor thing. You probably don't remember, but you'd have charts and you'd come to me. I did everything on this chart. Now, could I have a dog? And it's kind of the same thing. I had to deny you of a dog that I denied him of his, I mean, his racing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, but thank goodness she has Char now. I know. Now I have my little dog, which is thanks to her. She's the one that actually found Char for Surprised me. you. I think it's important just to have this conversation today, hear another perspective. I will say it was uncomfortable for me recording episode 16, being like, what is my family going to think about it? I did get permission ahead of time, sure. but what are they going to think? But I also think in some ways it's interesting. I think more recently we've had more dialogue about it. It's really funny. I can be very direct and a bulldozer. So I was always the one bringing up autism in our family. I would probably be the one to talk about it most at family dinners and like things like that. Would you agree with that? Yes. And what I wanted to say is that episode was like a healing for me because there's a lot of guilt. And she did such a beautiful job on it that it made me realize, oh my gosh, she even got something out of it. She even blossomed, even though I don't think, no, yes, of course there's guilt for the times I didn't get to spend with her. But I realized this made her the person she is. Yeah, for sure. So it was a beautiful episode the way she came to me and asked me, I'm like, okay. Okay, wait, we should when I called her and told her that it was published, I think, oh no, I text you and I sent it to you. Didn't you say, oh God? Oh yeah. Oh no. I said, oh, oh no. no. I'm like, oh no. And I was like, what kind of reaction? Paranoid. But anyway, when she did it, I was almost relieved. And I was even relieved to think, oh, she doesn't have all this resentment. Because I guess we never went to family therapy. No. We never knew how you felt growing up. But I don't think I knew how you guys felt either. And again, I think this is a shift of the time. I also think it's just autism care. I think family therapy or having someone who really is thinking about the family holistically could have been so monumental. And I I say in my new podcast intro, I recently recorded, which is on this episode, that I now create services and resources that I wish my family had. And, and so I just thought I'd let you guys in a little behind the scenes. Actually, a friend of mine mentioned about having my mom on the podcast. And I asked her and I was surprised. She was like, yeah, but then she came to visit me and she's like, should we do it? And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. So it was her idea. Anything before we wrap up the episode that you either want to share or any advice that you have for parents listening? The main thing, like you said, it almost has to be a family thing. And if you can get any support you can get, take it. 
therapy. My big thing was exercising. Just make sure you take care of yourself and your family. Yeah. But also sometimes easier said than done, says the woman who always <laughs> thinks about her kids and not herself. But it's funny when you're mentioning rollerblading, I have this aha and I saw it in a new light that I'd never seen it. I knew you guys did that. But I also think you did that for you too. Oh, yes. And so there are parts of it's easy to think it's selfish. And a lot of times our brains like to be able to spin it and create a story. And for you, you actually did say, well, he liked it. And I'm sure he did. I have no doubt my brother liked it. It probably was soothing, but it's also okay to be selfish and be like, I got to take this time for myself or I got to go get my nails done. Or how do you fill a day? Think about it. How do you fill a day? Because you don't go to the mall and shop and go store to store. Right. You didn't really go to restaurants. You had to find different ways to fill the day. You could have never have gone and waited in line at garage sales for our beanie babies. Oh, I was like, why are we waiting in line at garage sales? (laughs) But thank God I was over that craze by the time my brother was born. All right, y'all, that is a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, for being here and just sharing this moment with us. And more to come on not only this podcast, but also just having these conversations. And for so long, I resisted the idea of sharing this story because I thought it was my brother's story. And because he didn't identify with autism, he, again, he has no problem sharing about it, but it's not part of his identity. I was like, who am I to speak on this? And even sometimes it's actually really interesting. I struggle. Do I say my autistic brother? I'll be writing social media captions. And I'm like, it feels weird to me. So a lot of times I'll say my brother who was diagnosed at 23 months of age because it's not his identity. But for so long, I didn't think it was my story. And now realizing it is my story, right? And yes, I'm not the autistic one. I'm not the one who went through intensive therapy, but it is my story. It's my mom's story. It's my stepdad's story. It's our whole family story. And I think being able to shed light on this perspective and just be real about it, I think is a really important part and helps you to understand my brand and who I am as a clinician and as a provider and someone who provides resources, why I do it and how I think of these things. And I'd like to say her podcast, when we all did hear it, It actually was healing in a way. It was probably something that should have been done years ago. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. And she definitely came to all of us and made sure. And then it even took you a long time after that before you did it. It did. I think it was over Christmas. I got permission. I don't think it was finally till March. I recorded it because I had to sit with it myself, but maybe at some point I can convince my brother to come on the podcast and share his perspective in all of this. Yeah. All right, y'all. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And thanks for chatting. I love Love you you too. All right. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. 
One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.